Hey everyone, welcome to the Water Lab Podcast. I'm James Marshall and I'm very excited to have my guest on today. We've got a new partnership with a very exciting company, Pure Sports CBD, who have just come on board with their amazing product. So who better to get on than the co-founder himself, Mr. Grayson Hart. Welcome, bro. Thanks for coming on. Good to be here, bro. And um, mate, you're a bloke that um, just randomly popped up a few times. We've crossed paths in each other's careers and... Uh, Nah, bloody cool to see, you know, what you're doing with the podcast and just, yeah, cool to see people doing good things in life, man. And, uh, mate, happy to jump on and very, uh, who would have thought all those years back then in um, the 20s when we first came across each other um, that, yeah, we'd be bloody talking about sponsoring and doing partnerships with businesses and yeah. all sorts of stuff. I never would have picked it, man. So, nah, it's quite cool. In your career, mate, I, I didn't realise how many teams you'd actually played for till I went through the list. But for those who don't know, he's played for Auckland, North Harbour, the Blues, the Waratahs, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Ealing Trailfinders, London Scottish, Scotland Sevens, Scotland International 15s team, and he's currently playing for the Bedford Blues. What a list. Yeah. That's what you call a journeyman, eh? Um, <laughs> I remember when I was younger, me and my brother, whenever we would hear the commentators on Sky Sport calling guys a journeyman, we would laugh. We'd, laugh, <laughs> a journeyman. we'd be like, bro, that, that's, a, that, that's a pretty humble career, bro, yeah. a journeyman. But, um, nah, man, I'm a true journeyman. And um, it's something that like, I, I, I came up with. I just, my dream was, for Auckland and the Blues and you know I guess the bigger ambition as a kid growing up I'm sure you were the same like just with the All Blacks was like what you dreamed of and probably for me didn't seem like the it was it's something that I would achieve but like to play for Auckland and the Blues and I just my I was like bro I don't care how much I get paid I just want to play for Auckland for the rest of my life um and then when when my when sort of situations changed and different um avenues kind of played out what I started to realise is, man, like, rugby's amazing, but I also just want to have an experience of life as well. Uh-huh. Um, so a lot of my decisions in my career were also based around, you know, like, I, I want to make the most of this opportunity to have a great experience and see different parts of the world. And, um, and you know, and then some of the things were based around, like, um, looking as well around transitioning out of rugby and and working on business and what where I was best suited to be and stuff. So, yeah, man, it's been a pretty um, humble journeyman uh, career for me, but <laughs> one that I'm, uh, I've enjoyed it. <laughs> Mate, you've certainly seen some sights um, and played for some teams and been in some environments. So, um, But let's go back to the start for you. Like What I found really enjoyable from the podcast is hearing how some of the players who have been successful, how they all started, what their life was like growing up as a young kid. What was what was yours like? Yeah, man. Um, it was, I mean, I, I grew up pretty, how would you say, like um, <clears throat> I pretty much grew up with my, my old man. Um, he was a single father um, and he had sort of struggled a fair bit in his life. And so I kind of grew up, I guess, looking back to a pretty uh, tough time for me, my my brother and sister. Um, but I, I think as well, when you're that young, you don't really know how tough you got it. Like, you yeah. know, we, we grew up in state houses and my dad was on the benefit, but he did all he could to provide for us, you know. And um, I think one thing I always remember, like, I always had the meanest Adidas rugby boots and stuff like that. So I never felt like I went without, you know. Yeah. I played, played rugby at the park, 
played skateboarded, all these things. And I don't know, I guess, yeah, it was looking back, there were some tough times where the pantries and that were a bit bare and the fridge was a bit bare. But um, all in all, it was, you know, I was grateful for my upbringing. But rugby was just a massive part of what I loved, you know. Um, I, I feel like I was pretty good at rugby as a kid, but I don't think I knew, knew or thought I was great. I just kind of loved playing. So I, I never really thought of being a professional rugby player because I, yeah, I just didn't think I was that amazing at it. Um, but I remember I was at Mount Roskill Grammar School, and um, you know that was in the B grade competition in New Zealand uh, in Auckland, first fifteen. And I remember like I'd made Auckland under like you know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, and then when it got to under eighteens, I hadn't made it. They used to do trials. For the 14s, 15s, 16s, then when it got to 18s, it was just like the selectors would come, and and it was pretty sad because like no selectors would come watching our <laughs> Auckland Grammar. <laughs> they would all be at like Auckland Grammar and Kings and all that. And then I remember that was the first rep team that I didn't make, and I, I remember, you know, like you, you know, it's like growing up as a young boy in high school, like you don't you don't really cry or anything, but secretly at night I'd literally like cry my eyes out. Yeah. But then I just had this like burning desire. I was like, man. I wasn't doing that good in school or anything, but I was like, if I'm going to make something of my life, I don't want to live in a state house in Mount Roskill for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know? I want to have a car that I'm proud of or, or, you know, like, you know, I want sort of security in my life. So I was like, I want to, I, I really wanted to become a professional rugby player. That, that became my like burning desire. So I think that was the first time in my life and it was kind of like, I, I wanted to try to do something good with my life. And it looked like rugby was the right way. So I just put put all my eggs into that basket. And um, that was the sort of journey from, yeah, that's kind of what put me on the path to want to be a rugby player. So what age did you feel like you had that um, moment? Because I remember, obviously, you coming into, like, the under-19s, New Zealand, the trial camp sort of things, and you were, like, already that age, you were, like, the star of the camp. It was, I remember, like, you and Israel Dag and things were, like, the sort of the big names at the time there. You were starting ahead of Aaron Smith, and um, you were, like, the gun of the squad, really. So you must have had a pretty quick um, progression to get to that point. Yeah, she, like, and, but even that for me, well, like, I, I, I didn't sort of see it that way, but it was, like, that was my first ever national trial or and obviously been on to make the team and like that was the first time I've ever been anywhere near that oh, opportunity. Right. Um, and so pretty much what happened, bro, was when I finished school, uh, I, I was um, I was just working down at the ports of Auckland um, that, and the and hard yakker like <laughs> unloading containers in my my John Bull steel caps and my hivers vest. What age were you there? And um, uh, that was like straight out of school. I was eighteen. Oh yeah. And and so pretty much all I do is I work there. Sometimes it'll be graveyard shifts overnight. You get a bit of they get time and a half pay, so you do the old graveyard shift. Um, but it was I was just it was hard slogging then but then every other hour I'd be down at the park kicking, running my brother had a job as a PT yeah. at our local gym down the road. So he would write me a program. That was my first time like getting in the gym. I was gymming like a couple times a day because I was like pretty skinny in school and was about 70 kgs. And I got up to about like 80, 80, about, about 10 kgs in a, in, a, in a few months just going hard in the gym. And oh, I was yeah. 
first time for me to take my protein shake, but he eat my tuna on toast and go at home, look at my, my guns in the mirror, see them grow. And, um, yeah, and, and what actually happened was probably my brother would email every academy because it was like that, you know, what it's like, it was like if you finish high school, if you want to become a pro, it's like you, you kind of need to be in an academy. And I, and I was like, my brother would just email them all the time, being like, hey, like, would you have an opportunity? He'll come and trial. And anything to get me away from the ports of Auckland and give me a, a shot at it. And um, none of them were keen. And then, and then one day, what happened was um, the, the the guy who was the head of the Auckland Academy, he he emailed back and he was like, "Oh, we've got this trial game on Saturday. This was like a Wednesday." And and they were like, "It's the New Zealand Under Twenty One trial. Grayson won't be trialling, but um, there's been an injury." from one of the trials, so we just need him to fill a spot oh, to, to play the game for a trial. And I was just like, yeah, fucking get me there, bro. Like, <laughs> that's mean. And then um, just remember, like, that morning, bro, I did, like, a thousand passes practicing. I remember <laughs> got there late, got lost on the way. My, my old man, we got lost on the way. And then got there, got the last uniform, and they were, like, it was Blues region versus Chiefs region in yeah. the trial. It was my first time ever in like the Adidas, but mine was like three XL. I was the last one there, and it was like real baggy. I didn't care. But I was like, nah, I'm just going hard. And I and I just remember, to me, that was like opportunity of a lifetime. Like, and I just went hard. I played 40 minutes, um, and I was like, literally, I wasn't even playing like a scrum, like a number nine. But I was just gassing it everywhere, <laughs> trying to tackle you. <laughs> And then what happened was um, Pat Lamb came up to me after. He was watching because he was the Auckland ITM Cup, whatever it was called back then, coach. Yeah. This was in 2006, I think. Or, no, 2007. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he's, like, oh, he's like, oh, I want you to come to training on Monday. Can you come to training? It was pre-season training. Oh, like, yeah. Before pre-season, they have, like, pre-season where they have, like, a bigger sport yeah, of, yeah, like, yeah. like trials. He's like, yeah, I want you to come to training. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I just started training, just thought it was another amazing opportunity, training alongside, like, you know, guys that were in the academy and then some of the guys that were already contracted. Um, just thought an unbelievable chance to train and learn. And then my ambition was, okay, if I train well here, the uh, academy guys might give me a, a chance in the academy if they see Pat Lamb gave me a chance to train. So that was still my goal. And then, bro, like... Uh, I, yeah, he picked me in the in the squad and um, you skipped the academy. Steve Devine, yeah, I, I I skipped the old academy and uh, I ended up playing pretty much every game for Auckland that year. Steve Devine, who was a guy I idolised, he got injured. That was the sort of very end of his career. Took a bad head knock, yeah, had to retire. So yeah, I was there thinking maybe I'll play one or two games. He ended up getting injured. I played like the whole season. We won the. ITM Cup, we won the Round 30 Shield. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, then I think I was kind of almost fast-tracked to being earmarked as the potential New Zealand under-20s, um, number nine. And so, yeah, man, it was a real quick turn of events for me. That's crazy. Yeah, it's all, all sort of come from that one game where you got given an opportunity and then you're just, you're on, eh? You're off on your career. But 
How was it going into I remember that? talking in the car, bro, on the way there because my dad got lost on the way and that was the before, like, GPS <laughs> and all that and the iPhones and I was in the car being like, I wasn't saying anything, but I was like, well, my, my opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so how late were you to the game? Well, bro, got there, like, about five minutes before kickoff. Oh, like, true. Well, go uniform, but um, luckily I was on in the second half anyway, so oh, I kind yeah, of got yeah. a bit of time. But they, they were just like, oh, this guy's just filling in anyway. No one even cared. They're like, yeah, go grab the uniform. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. Things you get from those little moments eh, and grabbing them. So um, what was it like going into that Auckland environment as like a 18-year-old kid? Obviously, like you said, had a really successful season, lots of big names in the squad at that time. For you going into it, what how, how did you feel? Yeah, I, I was... It was, I was just so excited to be there, man. Like, honestly, it was like a dream come true for me. Um, like, we'd do our captain's runs at Eden Park. I'd be there. I'd be like, wow, man. Like, I could. Eden Park was a place I went as a kid every now and then, you know, uh, to watch. And that was like the bloody holy grail of rugby. So, just, yeah, it was pretty mind blowing for me. Um, and then, Playing alongside some of the guys that I did at Auckland at that time, you know, like I remember on my debut we had like Doug Howlett was playing one of those few games for Auckland, sure. you know, back because um, obviously the All Blacks and that they didn't play that much back then with uh, Midas and ITM, but he was playing. We had Joan Kaino, like we had Daniel Braid, um, Ethan Athiwa, Sam Suitapo, John Arfoa, like giving me a line, like man, Stay. I was I was just like. How am I here? I think I did. I was buzzing, absolutely buzzing to be there. But I also was shitting myself because I was kind of like, I idolize these guys so much. Yeah. And I kind of think that I I wasn't on a progression to be there. There was times where I was a bit like, man, like, I'm not on these guys' level. Like, I don't deserve to be here. Yeah. So I do think I kind of like um, within myself, you know, I kind of like struggled a bit to kind of express myself because I, I almost had a bit of that imposter syndrome. Like I should, I don't deserve to be here. But all in all, man, I was just like buzzing to be there. How was it with the money? Because obviously, you said that you didn't come from a very wealthy background, and then as an eighteen-year-old kid, you obviously start earning some pretty decent coin because you made the blues, I think, that same year or potentially the year after. So to have all mm. this income come in, how did you handle that? It was interesting man like i kind of i don't think i registered it really that well but like um and and and, you know like obviously it's not life-changing money but yeah when you've had nothing it was bloody for me like you know i was earning a wage even that now i'd be pretty happy with you know and as a 19 year old that was pretty sweet so um and i was just living at home still in mount roscoe in our bloody state house so and then I remember, like, my old man, when I'd go down the shops and that, he'd still be like, oh, mate, you want some money for the shop? I'm like, yeah, I'll get paid now. <laughs> I'm like, yes, you want some money. Um, and he, even things like that, I'd be like, oh, Dad, do you want rent? And he's like, no, no, all good. Um, so I, I I think I was I was pretty reserved, man. Like, I, although now, I mean, I, I didn't go out and buy any, like, big things or anything like that, um, but I... I think what I did do was I was around all my mates who they were earning nothing. Uh, they were, you know, most of them were students or, you know, working pretty 
sort of humble jobs. And I remember, I think the main thing I wanted to do was like have some nice experiences that I maybe had never had, you know, like growing up in Auckland in the school holidays, kids, families would go to like their beach houses and stuff like that. Yeah. And we, I, me and my friends had never experienced it. So I'll just do things like I'll, I would book a rent out a beach house for a week for me and my friends, you know, things like that. Um, I would buy the sneakers that I liked. I'd go for lunch and I'd buy my mates lunch because they didn't have money, things like that. But I guess those things, as you do them consistently, they stack up. You know, I'd buy my mates sneakers and I'd buy sneakers and stuff like that. And, um, but no, I don't think I was living like that lavishly. And I think, you know, I, I still got, you know, I still managed to like save a bit of money and stuff like that. Probably was great, helpful that I was living at home. But yeah, man, it was, it was, uh, definitely an interesting experience. I kind of sometimes, um, some of my friends now have done quite well, and I'm sitting there like, bro, you want to buy me a pair of sneakers? <laughs> <I> remember that? <laughs> but nah, all of that, um, all of that was, uh, I don't know, man. I, I think it was something that wasn't excessive, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm glad that I was able to do some cool things like that. Yeah, for sure. And then, how did you find you moved into the blues? Because obviously, that's just a another level up and a little bit more intensity. So, how did you find going into that environment? Yeah, same again. I think um, I what allowed me to kind of I think in my first year at Auckland, I I did quite well on the field. I played quite well because I had still had that really raw like mentality. Like yeah. I hadn't been coached, um, and I kind of what got me in there was I was quite an intuitive, like quite instinctive player. I think, um, and I was quite a sort of an attacking player, and I was very. I was a bit rugged as a nine, like, you know, I was pretty keen to get and rip into the defence and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, I think I did struggle, man, like, again, with another step up with the level of coaching because I, I wasn't used to that coaching. Um, and because I was so, like, hungry to be there, I feel I didn't understand how to be coached that well because... I tried to do everything they said. Yeah. Um, rather than I, I didn't kind of have the experience of being coached throughout my kind of development to understand what how to take things and put it into your game and progress with it. So looking back, I definitely think I wasn't like able to take the coaching on board as I would as it as I kind of as would have been the best way to develop. Um, and I think it did hinder my kind of play uh, and I became a lot more like trying to play to how the coaches wanted me to play. Um, and even now I still remember like when I made my open, my Blues debut and stuff, I was still only 19 and um, I remember Pat Lamb saying to me and like he would have been saying it as just like a coach trying to help a player out. But he was just like, look, like go out, just do your job. I don't want you to think about like attacking or or, or trying to put guys in space around the fringes. I just want you to pass, pass, pass. Yeah. But I remember like, I took it real literally, man, and I literally <laughs> just got there and just pass, pass, pass. So I'm like, no, you've got to do your role, what the coach wants you to do. Just do that. Now, I remember at the end of the year, I think I played like 10 games or something that season. At the end of the year, I had a review, and Pat was like, look, man, like, you just, you weren't yourself. You just pass, pass, pass. 
And I remember sitting in that review <laughs> and I was too afraid to say anything, but I was like, man, like, I was doing what you wanted me to do. Like, fuck. Um, so, yeah, I just, I did struggle, man. I, I actually really did. And I, I, yeah, it was looking back, I wish I was able to understand how to take things on board better. Is that what brought on the move to Australia? Because then you obviously moved over to over there to play for the Waratahs. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I, I when I went into the Blues, I signed a contract that was for like, a, I think it was for a few years, and I think I've done reasonably well at the Twenties and with Auckland, and like they kind of saw me, I guess, as someone that they were wanting to develop, and um, and and that was actually the, after that first year at the Blues and that was sort of for me when my life I, I started, took a bit of a kind of tough turn um, my old man passed away sure. um, that was something that really like really affected me because so I grew up and he was the guy that was sort of he, he was the one that kind of did everything like you know he, he was my family really that yeah. was kind of for me he was the one that was always there for me he played a massive part in, in my rugby, and um, so I, I was really struggling just in life personally with, with losing him, and I also really felt a bit of a it was a piece missing with my rugby because yeah. he was there. We, he used to, I remember growing up all the way. He used to write me little like notes on things like, "Oh, try the star." Carlos Spencer, kick off your knee, this and stuff. <laughs> yeah, right, I mean, like, and that. And, um, and that, I don't know, man, I just felt like he was no longer there and that was a massive part of my, like, that was what rugby was to me. It was something me and my dad shared. Every game we'd get back in the car and dad would be like, oh, good, you did this good or that, you know? And that was something that I always really valued. Um, so I think personally I was going through a really tough time on a couple of levels one, massively losing my dad. Two, struggling with my rugby to, to fit into that environment as a pro rugby player at such a young age and trying to play in a way that I, I was doing well, but I was struggling with that. Um, and I think what actually happened was because of those, the combination of feeling unsure and anxious about my rugby and how to progress and uh, probably not playing the way I would like to play and losing my dad it led me on a bit of a like tough patch off the field where I was just not feeling good about life and um, one of the way I coped with that looking back was uh, I was just drinking a lot man um, every weekend you know even to the point where if I was having a tough time throughout <clears throat> throughout the week I'd go out drinking, you know, the old midweek where the uni students would go out with a lot of my friends or students. So, yeah. you know, rock up to training, you know, after night out on on a Wednesday, rock up training on Thursday, you know, like, and that's obviously going to have a very negative effect on your ability to be a high-level rugby player, but also just it was mentally I was trying to cope. And what that does, it did, it, was, it just created a cycle, man. And I think I got to a point where I was like, I wanted to quit. The blues, man. I, I just was like, this is just not for me. Like, I, I don't know why. I just it went from being the thing in my life that was the best opportunity ever, like the dream, to being like, oh, like, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, and then 
I kept everything to myself though. I didn't express to anyone how I was feeling or the struggles, even my own friends, you know, like I was after my dad died, everyone knew he was the closest person to me and just kept it all to myself, put on a smiling face. But I was really struggling inside. And then but but because I wasn't talking about anything, like the blues, you know, that they, they they didn't know really what I was going through. Um and then it got to like the end of that season, and they're like, "Yeah, like we're not going to keep you for your next contract." And I, and that was for me like I wasn't surprised because I lost that kind of real passion that I had for it. Yeah, that, that like, real ripping into training every day, trying to get better. I was kind of going through the paces. Um, so yeah, man. But that was a rude awakening for me because I went from the Ports of Auckland to, you know, playing on Sky Sport, winning in under-20s, getting paid good money, uh, having a bit of security with a contract for a couple of years to being like, okay, bro, like, you, we don't want you anymore. And for me, it was back to square one, man. So, um, but I kind of knew, I, I knew I could have stuck and played Mighty 10 Cup again and try to build myself back up. Yeah. But Personally, where I was in life and the struggles I was facing and the kind of cycle that I was in with the drinking and all that trouble that I was getting into, um, I wanted a fresh start. So that for me was um, I, I wanted to go to Australia and just start from scratch and um, pretty much just really find my passion for playing rugby again, not as like a job or, or a, a progression to get somewhere with but, but they just to almost find myself again through rugby because that was a massive part of my life. So you didn't have a offer to go to the Waratahs, you didn't actually have a contract there, you just went over there to start playing back at club level, yeah, was it? What happened was um, I went over to a club and what they call the Shoot Shield, oh, um, yeah. which is like it's like a semi-professional comp in, in Sydney. Um, because back then they didn't have like a, an ITM, Mighty 10 Cup type setup. So that was almost their thing, their version, but it was semi-professional. You'd train just in the evenings, yeah. most guys would have jobs. Um, and then sort of the back end of the season, all the super rugby guys would come play for those clubs. Um, but yeah, it was, so it was, yeah, pretty much an opportunity for me. And, and what they did was, um, I wanted to get away from Auckland have a new experience of living somewhere else. Sydney seemed like a cool place for me to go and have an experience as a young guy. Um, and in the club there, uh, they they gave me a place to stay. They gave me a car. They paid me a match fee. And then if I wanted, they would help me out with some work throughout the day. And I and I, when I first went there, like what they were paying me in terms of like with the rent and um, match fee was good enough, but I was quite bored throughout the day. So I was like, yeah, no, I want to, get a job so they helped me off a job and my job was as the groundskeeper at the club um <laughs> so i was like mowing the lawn <laughs> cleaning out the changing and um so that was as weird as it sounds man like honestly that year was one of the best years of my life so sure. like um just around around a bunch of guys who loved rugby they loved that club we trained hard um, you know, working a lot and I have my workmates or guys that were at the club and, you know, we'd work and have a laugh and it really allowed me to just appreciate rugby and actually like it was probably the best rugby I'd played because it was, I was just like no, 
pressures on what how to play. It was just play how you play, and I think I played pretty well. Got a um, picked up a contract with the Waratahs, and then from there for me it was like getting back into that setup. It made me realize how lucky I was to train in these amazing facilities, have all the analysis, have all the training gear, have your protein and all these things supplied. And I was just like, well, I'm just going to appreciate it and give my all to it. Um, but my outlook on life did shift a bit there. Was, I think I became more rounded as a person in a way, or my beginning of that journey of becoming more rounded started because before that, everything in my life was about rugby and how I could progress as a rugby player, uh, how many games I could play for this team and you yeah. know, what that meant in my mind, my identity and all that. Um, so uh, 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 my life became a bit more balanced, I, I think. How good. And then you're going into the Waratahs. Was Michael Checker your coach? And how did you find him and what was your experience at the Waratahs? My, my first year was a um, uh, guy, Michael Foley. Oh, yeah. um, and and um, like that was probably one of my first years learning very much so around like a more tactical side of play with like a more of a kicking game as a, as a number nine. So I learned quite a lot around that, but that was also very, very structured. So yeah. that was a new style for me. Um, and so I learned a fair bit there, but that was something I was trying to kind of in, implement into my game. And then the next, and then, the, and then they were really happy with me and like I signed a new contract and I was um, signed there as the top two player at Scrum Half and was really looking forward to a, like a really strong season the following season. And then like I think in the preseason he got fired or something and um, Michael <laughs> Checker got bought in. Um, and yeah, I remember round one, uh, Checker was just like, yeah, you're not playing this game, but... Um, You'll get your shot in the first within the first like five rounds. You're, you're going to start a game. That's my plan, and yeah. we're going to give you a crack and see how you go. And I was like, "Yeah, sweet me." Um, got to like round six, and I hadn't played a game. So I went, I had him up, and I thought, "Oh, I was like, oh um, remember when you told me in the first five rounds I'd get a shot? Like, um, I'm keen as for a game. Eh? I just want to have a go. Is that still like something that you're thinking of?" Um, and you know how it is, you know, I mean, for me, I always quite looked up to the coaches and wanted to impress Lee and all that. And, and he was like, well, his reply was, he was like, well, what are you, you, you saying I'm a liar? And I was like, no, like, I'm, I'm not saying you're lying. Like, I just, you know, we had a chat at the start and you said in the first five rounds, I'd get a game and round six now and I'm just keen to play. And he was like, you like lost it. He's like, oh, fuck. Saying I'm a fucking liar, and I was like, I was like, bro, I, I'm not. I'm saying what you said to me. I'm just asking, but it happen. I'm not. I'm not. You're the one usually knows with. I'm like, it's up to you. You're the one saying that. I, I'm just. I just want to play. And he was like, say I'm a fucking liar. And then after that, bro, he just, he just didn't like me. Really? Um, <laughs> That's so awkward. Yeah. After that, bro, he just wouldn't talk to me or. And, um, so I was a bit fucked there and then yeah literally just didn't play and then I think it got about another five six games along from there and then that's when I was like fuck this guy <laughs> um, and then my agent was like oh um, 
the Scottish rugby are really keen to have because my grandma was born in Scotland. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was just like, yeah, it looked like a good opportunity. And that's where I was talking about the start, where I was almost looking at life like having a good experience like and, and having a chance to, you know, develop as a human and, and experience new places. And I think I, like, you know, you had your opportunity you played over in the UK. I think many young or Kiwi rugby professional players kind of see that as something they would like to do potentially yeah. um, as an opportunity to experience another part of the world. And so, yeah, man, that that was good timing for me when old Checker buddy <laughs> was still with me and an opportunity to go to the UK came up. How dare you ask him for a, for a start? <laughs> yeah, it was tough enough as it was, mustering up the bloody courage to go ask him. And then he <laughs> shit at me. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's cracker. And then, so then you... I, think, I, think what, I think what the nail in the coffin was, I think by the end of that convo, I was just like, well, I was like, well, mate, like, I'm not calling you a liar. You're the one saying, you're the one using those words. So if that's what you want to call it, cool, call, like, whatever. But I'm just saying, I'll, I'm asking you, <laughs> are you going to do what you said you're going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, either, either way, it didn't go down well. Oh, that's I was so, out of the way. so good. <laughs> so then the next move for you was to Glasgow. Or was it Edinburgh? Uh, it was actually Edinburgh, yeah. It was Edinburgh. So, um, I was Edinburgh. Um, it was actually a couple of years before that the SIU had been hitting my agent up because I think what Scottish rugby do, because they don't have a huge amount of depth, they're always fishing around the agents to see which young yeah. pros have credibility from especially New Zealand, Australia, South Africa. So they had actually hit me up just after the 20s. And oh, I was really? like, oh, I want to I'm an all-black man. Yeah, like, yeah. come on. And um, so they had kind of expressed their interest over the couple of years. And then when that kind of time arose with the Waratahs, then they came back with an actual clear-cut offer. Like, yeah. yeah, bro, let's go. And how did you find Edinburgh? Um, oh, it, it was tough, man. Um, it was, like, so different the style of rugby, yeah. uh, it was literally, honestly, like, I was doing between 15 to 20 box picks a game. Um, and the way it was coached was, you know, as a playmaker and or any player, I think, New Zealand rugby, like, if you see an opportunity to, like, manipulate space, your guys, uh, we're all we're taught to kind of read each other yeah, off the cuff. And, and so I would see like spaces down the blind or like a, a, a guard out of place and try and, you know, like you'd, you'd go there, you'd try to bring someone in to open the space next to you, things like that. And I'd be doing stuff like that and like training them <laughs> and dudes are just like looking at me like, bro, like, that's not the game plan, man. Like, and, and, uh, and so I was like, oh shit. So it was, I, was, I found that really quite frustrating, but I knew very quickly, I was like, okay, like I signed a two year contract here. It was a good contract. Um, I wanted to do well there, so I was like, "Bro, I got to learn to like play the way these guys play." So I just, I just started working really hard to just play a very reserved scrum half game, which is what they wanted specifically. Lots of box kicking, yeah. Um, lots of kind of slowing the play, hitting the forwards up. Um, so that was tough, man. But um, I've never had so much critiquing on like a box kick not being within the tram line. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, that was challenging, man, but uh, lots of box kicking practice. 
Um, and I, I actually hit the gym hard for the first time because they loved the gym over there. And because um, it was dark at like 4 p.m. and like I didn't really know what else to do with my time, like we had we'd, we'd obviously have the club member uh, club gym and we'd go hard in the gym there. And uh, I was probably training harder than I had before because they loved the gym there. Yeah, and I was putting on quite a lot in size and then when it would get dark at like 4pm I would get like pretty down and I wouldn't know what to do I wouldn't want to sit at home so I'd go to the like we had a membership to like a nice gym like a David Lloyd oh, um, yeah. so I'd just go there and do twice so I got up to like <laughs> my first season there but I got up to like 100kgs of like muscle oh, hey. ball of and, and it kind of suited the way because this play was so slow yeah. um, and then I was kind of made my name as like quite strong defensive player there so I'll just plug in the line and try and put shots on dude because I was 100 kg so <laughs> had no other way to eat. I wasn't a there. Um, and then yeah I think I, I actually ended up doing quite well in that season for the way they wanted me to play and I think the Scottish Rugby Union they're very stats driven so they liked that there was the scrummer who was 100 kgs who had low body fat who was fast <laughs> over 10 meters and yeah. did all right in the yo-yo had a good squat um, <laughs> like on the board and so I think pretty much based upon my stats and playing all right yeah in a humble way then they I got picked for Scotland so at the end of that season and how was that experience yeah. going in into that setup you obviously still would have felt pretty Kiwi and um, belting yeah, out the yeah. Scottish na- national anthem, which is most of the boys' yeah, favourite one on the purse. Um, <laughs> it's a good anthem. Um, <laughs> it's funny, like when you're not a true Scot or like you know born and raised Scotsman. Yeah, they make you every day on the bus when you're on training. Um, we get on and off the bus to go to training. You have to get up, and any new player who's like not from Scotland, yeah. have to sing the anthem oh, true. every day until you get the words exactly right. Oh, true. Um, it took me a few days. But, but yeah, there was a few dudes that weren't that keen on, like, the kilted Kiwis and Aussies and yeah. South Africans that kind of took a while to warm to you. But most of them were, I mean, like half of them are bloody got English accents anyway. Like, yeah. they're bloody raised in England. If their grandma was Scottish, but they don't think it's maybe bad an island to them. But um, <laughs> when you're a Kiwi whose grandma or parent moved over, they kind of think, "Oh, this place is going to take our spot." But nah, most it was most of them. They took a while, then they're all good with you. And uh, but most of them, anyway, there was only a few guys. All most were awesome. It was a cool experience. But um, I found it tough, man, because we went. I went from playing in that Pro 14 as a 100kg scrum up that was playing a very slow tempo game with yeah. a lot of box picks to starting my first test for Scotland against Argentina in the peak of their summer in um, Buenos Aires uh, in a day game, 30-something degrees, <laughs> high tempo rugby because Vern Cotter was the coach, the Kiwi. Yeah. Uh, I'll... Fuck, man, I was, like, not getting to those rucks quickly, bro. So it was a bit of a – that's when I learned, okay, all good and well. Like, my guns might look good and uh, might, I might be able to smash a few dudes around the ruck um, in Pro 14 when you're playing in bloody five-inch mud, but yeah. this is no – like, so um, 
probably wasn't my best showing for Scotland. I played three tests, played Argentina, Canada, South Africa. Was bloody blowing out my ass every one of them. <laughs> um, trying to get to the KD, and uh, but no, I loved the experience, man. And um, it was it was amazing. It was pretty cool for me to like achieve, you know, like although I guess growing up my dream was to play for the All Blacks. I think when that wasn't looking like a reality, when I saw the opportunity to play for Scotland, there was still a dream to be playing international rugby. And yeah, man, but. I think as well, like, I kind of learned something from that experience, which was, like, I remember after my first test in the hotel, afterwards, kind of achieving a dream of playing international rugby, I didn't feel different as a, it kind of sounds weird, but I kind of measured how I felt yeah. about myself. I didn't feel better or different as a human being. And for me, that was quite a eye-opening experience um, because... My whole life, I put so much into achieving my rugby dream. And I really, I think I truly believed as a kid that grew up in these state houses that saw rugby as a chance to feel good about myself. I realized that can't make anyone feel good, man, um, through that achieving that international rugby dream and getting paid pretty good money to play and all that. Like, So it kind of allowed me to see like, oh, Life isn't about what you achieve outwardly. Yeah, like still have ambition and want to do well in whatever you do, but don't ever think that it's going to make you feel like a better human being. Because I don't, that I don't, it sounds a bit philosophical, but honestly, man, I remember in the hotel that night, I was like, fuck, oh, man, people, we, we're taught to put everything into what we achieve. Yeah. Like, I've just achieved so much, and I don't feel different. <laughs> And I think a lot of people uh, would say that, like when you see celebrities and, and stuff who are feeling like depressed or going through like drug addictions and things, you're like, how is this guy not happy? He's got everything he wants. But I guess when you've got everything you want and you're still not happy, then it's probably worse because you're like, why am I not happy? I've got everything that I want. Yeah, man, 100%. Bro. And I think, I reckon all humans experience it at some varying level, yeah. you know, like, I think for us, it's very easy to look at it because, you know, like yourself and, and most guys that play professional sport, like you've got to give everything to it to try to get where you want to be. But there's times where you might do unbelievably well and then you're like, oh, but yeah, like other than the initial feeling of like, yeah, like we won or whatever, or you just signed a new contract. Once that initial like buzz is gone, it's like, I don't feel different. Um, and I feel every human, I think through my experiences in rugby and like, like you know, even like losing my dad and like achieving cool things quite young and kind of not getting that fulfilled through them, it's made me be interested in learning more about, I guess, life and like what, what it's all about. Um, and yeah, I, I reckon like we're all, every human taught and, or, or not taught, but like our culture kind of tells us in a way through the media and like, schooling and all that that you're going to feel better when yeah. you know, when you get the when you get this job when you get this pay right but I think it's a myth man like I think you can't feel better ever no matter what you achieve then what's possible to feel right now and when I think when you see that you start to go out and want to achieve the things that you want to achieve but you do it feeling 
good about yourself rather than being like, when I achieve it, I'm going to feel good. Yeah. So it, I'm not the best at explaining it, but I've learned this is the kind of things I feel that have helped me throughout my life. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. So then how did you go from your 100 kg massive frame to get into the um, Scottish sevens idea? What was what was all that about? You're obviously struggling to keep up in the 15s man game, so you decided to test yourself yeah. in the fastest form of the game possible. Yeah, so, I mean, um, that was, I think I very quickly learned that, yeah, 100 kg wasn't good for me. Although I used to get a lot of comments like, bro, you're massive, bro. <laughs> like, that was good for the ego, but for my rugby, it wasn't that good. Um, so I just made sure that I cut down on my weight um, and stopped going in the afternoons to do extra bicep curls at the gym when I was bored. Um, we just started maybe watching Netflix and stuff like that rather. Um, but I actually, the end of my two years at Edinburgh, I got offered again to play for Edinburgh and uh, another two-year contract with Edinburgh. And I remember like uh, Glasgow Warriors were a team that were kind of known as, you know, they played a really high-tempo game and a bit more of an attacking style. And I just remember the director of the Scottish Rugby, when they offered me the contract, I was like, look, man, I'm so thankful for this offer, but I really just don't think the style of rugby like is for me. I don't, I don't enjoy it. Like I feel so restricted. I was so over like trying to get guys to come with me, and and I, and I felt like it wasn't how I, yeah, what I thought of rugby, you know. Um, and and so I said to my guy, I, 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 I want to play for Glasgow Warriors. Can you, can I get a contract there? And then um. He kind of thought that I was trying to like play the one off for the other to try to get a yeah. get a salary, and, I, and, he, and he was like, "Mate, you're not going to fucking negotiate between the two. And I was like, "No, genuinely." <laughs> I go, "This is as simple as it is. I'm thankful for the offer from Edinburgh, but if my only offer on the table is Edinburgh, I'll, I'll respectfully, I'll, I want to go elsewhere. As in, like, I'll go try get a contract somewhere in England, or yeah. I'll go elsewhere. Um, so for me, it's I would like to play for Glasgow or I'm going to leave. Um, and then, yeah, I ended up getting a two-year contract at Glasgow. Um, that was an amazing opportunity. The team was doing really well. We made the semi-final my first year. I played all the games. It was far better style of rugby, playing alongside um, Finn Russell, who's yeah. you know pretty amazing, like, intuitive player, one of the most talented sort of guys and that I've played alongside. And that was pretty cool. In my next season, um, it was I was going in there like kind of yeah, the sort of number one or two nine, and had a guy coming through, Ali Price, who's gone on to be the Scottish yeah. starting scrum half and the very, really, really talented guy. And that year, he kind of just sort of came through and did amazingly well. And I, I started to sort of not get as much game time towards the back end of the season. Um, and by then, my missus, um, I met my beautiful now wife, and she had sacrificed coming from London to Glasgow. I convinced her to move, and <laughs> Glasgow was a bit of a, a different move. city than London. <laughs> and so one of the provisors of her moving was, okay, when I finish this contract, I'm going to do my best to find a team in London. Oh, yeah. So I was looking hard for a contract in London for us to move back to London um, and I wasn't playing for much game time for Glasgow and then I kind of said, look, 
to Gregor Townsend, who was a coach at the time, I was like, oh man, like, if I'm not playing, I'd love to just go train with the sevens and see what that's like. Because um, really, I just wanted to run around and chuck the ball around yeah. and run and you know, a bit more freedom and training and not hold tackle bags, really, because that's what I was doing at that back end. Um, and he was like, yeah, sweet, go. Ended up training um, for a week and then wasn't expecting it. And then I bloody made the tour to the Hong Kong sevens. True. Um and man, like I loved it, like absolutely loved it. Um, felt like the most freedom in terms of on the rugby field I've felt in a long time. Um, did all right in that first, although I was bloody would last about, I reckon I was good for about five minutes and then I was just <laughs> hanging there for another five of it and get subbed off. What position um, were you? Uh, I was, I was, the, I was scrum half. Oh, so I was, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. sort of you know, scrum half, first receiver. Um, so, yeah, it was it was tough going, but I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think it was, you know, it was obviously one of those ones that was so tough, but the light was at the end of the tunnel because you kind of knew that I knew after about 10 minutes I'd get shoved off. Yeah. Um, so I'd just go hard for that. Um, yeah, man, I, 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 it was an amazing experience. I, I actually ended up getting offered a contract to stay on with the Kevins, but um, I'd already signed for the Eden Trail Finders. That was the best kind of club and contract I could find yeah. for me and my missus to get to London. So as I was one looking back, like, damn, I would have loved to have stuck with the Kevins and really enjoyed that. But um, no, it was cool for my missus and I. It was kind of like what I spoke about at the start. My perspective of rugby and the opportunity wasn't, wasn't just rugby. It was like what it could do for our life. And, yeah. Uh, it was cool to get back to London. You you had you had a, a couple of years in London with London Irish. We actually crossed paths and played against each other one or two times, which yeah, was cool. But yeah. Um, yeah, man, it was cool to be able to go to London and do that. My, my missus loved being back in London, so that was good. So you did a f- you've done three years in the champ in England, eh? And you've sort of switched teams every year. What's that been? What's the yeah. reason been behind that? So my first year. At Ealing, Ealing kind of sold the dream in terms of like, because I had a few sort of options. I think I was still in a reasonably good position when I was at Glasgow. I, w- I had not long from being a Scottish international, although I hadn't had another shot at it since I played those games. But I had still been in the squad and um, been 24th man I think, a few times. <laughs> and uh so I was still in a pretty strong position, but, but Ealing actually came and offered me, like, they had a pretty good budget um, for a championship club. They were kind of more selling that they had this budget. They wanted to go to the, get promoted to the premiership the next year. Oh, yeah. um, so for me, I was like, shit, that's a cool opportunity. Like, these guys are offering me a good contract. They're saying, like, you're, we want you to, like, be part of us getting promoted, all this stuff. Um, and so I was buzzing about that opportunity and I was like, cool, imagine that, go hard, win the chance. They made the semis the year before. They were like, our goal is to win the champ, get promoted. I was like, mean, I'd love to be part of that. Yeah. Um, and then it was kind of funny, man, because like when I got there in the preseason, they were doing like this goal setting thing. Yeah. And then we all got split into groups and then the head coach, he was like, okay, like go away and like come set your goals for the season and come back and present it to the to the group. So we went off in these groups of five and we we're all talking and we're like, oh, well, we're all chatting to each other. And we're like, 
yeah, like, well, when I got signed, we were talking about getting promoted. So I think obviously our goal will be to get promoted. And we went back and we presented that. <laughs> we're all in agreement with all of our group. And we went back and we're like, yeah, like, our, we think a realistic goal for us, we made the semis last year. We think we should get promoted. And then the head coach was like, well, you know, I think we've got to be realistic. Bristol's just been relegated. They got guys like Stephen Door too on seven hundred grand a year. Um, we've got to be realistic. I don't think we're arguing. We're not going to beat them. So I think we should set a realistic goal of finishing second. And and I was just thinking, I was like, bro, what the fuck? Like you started me selling me this dream of we want to get promoted to the Premiership. And yeah. now I'm here on A one, setting the goals of finishing second. I was like. Like so I knew I was, it was off to a, not a great start. Um, <laughs> Let's crack up. And cause I genuinely went there being like, I was buzzing about trying to win the championship and get promoted. That was, to me, was a cool thing. Um, so that season didn't go to plan. Um, <laughs> did you get second? We did. We did. Yeah. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> we lost to Bristol the two times we played them by like by literally one point. Oh, so true. I'm sitting there like, that goal. Like, bro, like, yeah, it's like, if you set a goal, you, we literally set a goal to win pretty much what the coach was saying is you can't beat Bristol, but we'll try win every other game and we'll try in a second. But to me, if you go on a rugby field, it doesn't matter who you are. You're going out there, even if it's going to be the biggest upset ever, your ambition is to try to get the upset. Like, so I was just saying, I was like, bro, like, I actually argued with him in that goal scene. I was like, why would you even set a goal to be second? Like, if you believe <laughs> even that you can be second, yeah. you should at least, you should set your goal to be first because yeah. if you don't hit it, you're second anyway. Yeah. You know, like, it doesn't make sense. So anyway, man, uh, that was off to a bad start. And I, I, it was, if I speak plainly, like, I just didn't enjoy it. It was not a club for me, man. It was yeah. very, I didn't like the way they treated the players. I didn't like, yeah, the kind of sort of hierarchy and it was, for me, the first experience in the championship where there was no, like, governing body, like, looking out for the players. I would see guys with contracts just get cut for no reason. And I was just like, bro, this is not yeah, my place. Yeah. So um, I think from there, bro, I was getting into my late 20s. And from, for me, I really was, I realised I was so much, not, not more than rugby, but life was more than rugby. Um, so I started to look at, like, how am I going to set up my life and, and utilise my rugby career, which I've given like, everything to. But how am I going to try and utilise the back end of my career to transition? Yeah. So I then started seeing championship rugby as an opportunity for me to give my all and try to play some good rugby, but to transition. Yeah. Um, so my all my next contract decisions were based around um, that being the viewpoint of. So that's why I had I've had a few moves around to be at clubs that their schedule suited me in terms of my business ventures yeah. outside the field and you know like location as well that suited me for my business ventures and stuff like that. So yeah, man, the back end of my career. Uh, and it's still something I'm thankful for with rugby to allow me to kind of have that transition as well. Yeah. So let's get into that business venture. Uh, where did that start? When did that start? And what made you what made you go down there? Yeah, it, it was all the way back at Glasgow Warriors. Um, well, actually, when I was at Edinburgh, when I first got there, um, I 
had a medical and um, to pass the contract, they do a full medical test. And my knee was quite sore and a bit swollen. Yeah. And about a couple years before that, I had like a not a big injury. I tore the meniscus and I was out for about eight weeks and I recovered. But after that, when I returned to play, I kind of would always have a bit of an ache in my knee. Um, but I never thought anything of it. I just carried on. But after a couple years of that, it kind of got worse where, you know, I was taking a few painkillers before games and stuff. My knee would get a bit puffy, but I still didn't think anything of it or didn't stop me doing anything. It was just a bit sore. Then when I got to Edinburgh, they did the medical, um, and then my knee was like really quite puffy and swollen, and um, and I'd just come off like a long-ass flight to get there. So the guy was like, oh, we're going to send you for a scan on your knee, and I was like, yeah, sweet, didn't think anything of it. Came back, and they were like, called me in the office, and it was like real like doom and gloom, like faces, expressions, I was like, oh, shit. They're like, oh, well, we've got your scan back, like, and pretty much in their medical terms, they're like, your knee's fucked, like. Um, they pretty much said that the makeup of your knee has all wasted away. Um, all the cartilage is wasted away. You've got extra bone growth because your knee's trying to like um, sort of make up for the loss of uh, cartilage and all this. And yeah. they described it as a degenerative knee. And that to me was like, oh, what the hell? Like, bro, I've never missed a training or a game. Like, what? And they're pretty much saying, like, oh, well, we can't pass your medical based on what the scan's showing. But they're like, well, get, we've got to get a couple other opinions. And I remember my family calling me out, like, hey, how's Edinburgh? And I was like, oh, fuck, like, Kingsville might be coming home. Like, <laughs> um, and, and then anyway, a couple of the other specialists, they're like, look, like, yeah, the scan, your knee is buggered. Um, but everyone's response differently. You're still functional. You're still... They did all these like functional tests on me and stuff, and they're like, you know, you, you're still able to function, so we, you can still play rugby. But they all said the same thing. They're like, you're gonna most probably the state of this knee, if you choose to keep playing rugby and put it through those rigors, you're gonna need a knee replacement by the time you're 40. And yeah. I was like, oh, you know, I had dreams of having kids and running around and playing <laughs> in the park, playing touches, and old like. 50 year old codger and yeah. you know telling people I used to be a pro and like all that but anyway um so man but anyway it wasn't given for me I was just going to keep playing rugby so I did but what happened from there was I was just on painkillers all the time and, and my knee was getting worse and the swelling was worse and it got to the point where about every three months I have to get my knee drained of oh, fluid yeah. um about take about 100 mil of fluid out and I was, it, it got to a point, man, uh, that I was taking about six to seven painkillers a day. Holy. Um, at the, yeah, at the back end of the week to try Jeez. and get, feel right to play. What sort? Or um, just like the Voltarins and the Naproxens and wow, bloody. Wow, seven a day. Jeez. Yeah, it was because I'd lose the like, effect, you know, yeah. so I'd have to take more. Um. So now it was a bad place to be in and like I just knew that like I could feel in my clarity of mind and like the ups and downs of like my energy, like just taking all that was really, really bad for me, um, like physically and mentally. So I, I just started researching all the time, like what can I do as a natural alternative to help pain? And I was always trying different supplements like turmeric, 
fish oils, yeah. trying like different diets, like anti-inflammatory, different methods of like recovery and all that. Um, and and then that's when I came across CBD kind of throughout that journey of researching different things throughout the months. And um, I heard of guys talking about CBD in America. Like I heard of NFL guys and MMA, UFC guys. I think America was a bit ahead of the game with CBD. Yeah. Uh, and CBD, for anyone that doesn't know, stands for cannabidiol. It's an extract from um, the hemp plant, you know, which is well, like cannabis. Yeah. Um, but CBD is a non-psychoactive uh, compound and it has like uh, beneficial medicinal properties um, within the body but without that it's THC which is a compound that gets people high yeah. on cannabis so CBD is a compound that doesn't have any effect on the mind but has um, like healing benefits so I was intrigued man and I was, first of all I was like hey like how are these guys able to take a supplement that comes from weed? And uh, so I was like really interested in that. Researched it, like did a whole lot of research. Um, remember, I was getting dark at 4 p.m., so I had a lot of time on my hands <laughs> in Scotland doing research, watching YouTube clips. And and um, what I learned was it had just come off the world anti-doping um, band list. That's why these guys were able to take it. But I kind of knew also that their testing uh Drug testing was a bit more flexible in UFC and NFL and, and professional rugby. Uh, but I did a whole lot of research. I kind of looked into it. And, and I was at a point in my career where, like, just for my life, man, I was like, I don't want to keep taking these painkillers. So I was willing to take a bit of a risk. Yeah. For me, it was like a calculated risk. I did a lot of due diligence. I ended up ordering CBD, the ones that I thought I could absolutely trust. Um, trialed a whole lot of different products, different brands. Some were like, unbelievable man like they helped me so amazingly I was surprising I was like this is what I've been looking for I was able to like firstly cut down on the painkillers then I managed to like get away from the painkillers altogether um and but I also some of the ones I tried were like the products weren't good so yeah. I kind of created my interest into why some are good some aren't stuck with the ones that were working well for me I remember a team doctor came to me after like a few months. He was like, mate, like, you're not coming for me for these prescriptions like you were before. Like, what's going on? And I was like, I was a bit apprehensive to tell him. I was like, oh, well, I've been taking CBD. And he's like, oh, you know, okay, well, let me let me go look into it. Came back to me the next day and he's like, mate, like, you can't take CBD. It's not <laughs> batch tested. Yeah. It's not certified. There's too much risk that it could be contaminated with like THC because it's extracted from that and THC is still banned and all that. So I was just gutted. I was like, nah, man, like, I don't want to go back to the painkillers. I was just searching everywhere, emailing people, trying to call people to be like, can you give me any clarity as a drug-tested athlete of what's in it? Can I have the safety? Like, can you give me any guarantees? No one, everyone was really vague. Um, and then by then I was just like, well, um, I want to find a way to do it. So I kind of realized, and by then my good mate and my teammate Adam, um, Adam Ash, who's my co-founder at Pure Sport CBD, he was on CBD. He had just had a hip surgery and he was finding it really, really helpful. So we, we kind of were on the search together by that point. Um, and then we, we, we sat down and they were like, bro, if we can find a way to do it, create the products that we have literally searched the globe for and cannot find that that 
one, we're going to do provide what we want yeah. that we can't find and solve our problem. But we can make a business of it because we can't find it anywhere. And and our viewpoint was if we can do it right and get it batch tested, we would be the first brand in the world to have an officially batch tested for sport product. And then what we said was if we can do that, what we'll do is we'll show the wider audience that have a stigma towards like cannabis based products that see that pure that our brand is something that can be seen apart from that stigma that can help break that stigma and be like these are products that are health that are beneficial, they're safe, they're used by elite athletes, they don't get you high and they help you. So that was kind of our game plan in terms of the brand. Because I think as well we were like we can't have a brand that's aimed just at pro athletes yeah. because we knew pro athletes don't like buying shit. They ask the agents <laughs> to get they ask the agents to get it for free. Yeah. So if you create a brand that ain't only at pro athletes, like you ain't gonna have a good business. So yeah, man, that's how it all started, and it was quite a lengthy process learning, and we kind of got consultants on board um, to educate us on how the product needed to be made. We worked with like the leading manufacturers in the industry to create like a bespoke um, extraction method for our products um, to make sure that they were to the specifications that we needed for the batch testing. Um, and then we, yeah, we, we're, we're the first company in the world that had a range of products batch tested by an organization called BSCG, which is the Banned Substance Control Group. And they're like a world recognized batch testing agency that's um, under the World Anti Doping Compliancy. And pretty much what happened was, yeah, Adam and I had to give, convince both of our partners that it was a good idea to invest our probably life savings into a <laughs> cannabis company even though we had no business experience and yeah. that took a bit of convincing. Then all of our money pretty much went into the development of the products and then the batch testing. And then we were left with these unbelievable products, but we were dudes that didn't know how to market. We didn't know how to like, you know, we didn't have any business knowledge. But fortunately what happened was when we launched it just on social media, our inbox just started getting full from athletes who yeah. were like, I've been waiting to try CBD, but there's been none that I could take that was batch tested. Yeah. And then what happened was because we do, we didn't have a market, but we were like, "Yeah, mean, like, but you got to buy it, bro." You know. Yeah. <laughs> so they all started buying it, but they all started talking about it on their social media, and then it gained momentum. And then our plan started happening because everyday people that wanted to see the benefits of CBD that perhaps weren't open to CBD because they thought it was weed or whatever mm. they saw like they saw like World Cup winning All Blacks they saw England international rugby players they saw Olympians they saw professional boxers speaking about pure sport CBD so it kind of broke that stigma and so yeah man that that's kind of how the brand kind of was evolved just having really. a good product that's eh? amazing what it can do because even like I just posted yeah, it the man, other definitely. day about our partnership, eh? And man, my inbox blew up about, oh, can you get it into New Zealand? Or oh, how does it go? Like this is this looks awesome and all this stuff. I was just like, holy, this this stuff's legit. Like people really want mm -hmm. this and they love it. So, and obviously my experience as well is a little bit like yours. And I had the sore hip, had the same thing with the bone spurs and things. And man, 
the CBD oil that you've given me has been massive for me and made it's um it's awesome to see what you've done in that space and it's awesome to have that product out there for for the world now. Yeah, man, it's um it's been a cool journey, like um, and it's it's cool to be working and trying to you know building a brand that started truly as a solution for like myself and Adam yeah. you know and because then that keeps with it that level of like integrity you know um, and, and that kind of purpose behind it so man like and, and it's fucking hard man like growing a business like I didn't know I was so naive when we started as to the responsibilities of how like challenging and how much work it would be Yeah, but also obviously it's a great thing that it's growing that we have those that level of like responsibilities and um work that because if it wasn't growing we wouldn't have that um but you know like it it, it can quickly move from like this thing that you see as this amazing idea and um and and a kind of naivety about how what it entails to to grow it the, the brand but to actually being in it and living it and like waking up every day and knowing that you're literally got a full day of like hard work to get stuck into and so much to learn and um problem solving business man is like problem solving 101 like every nothing goes exactly <laughs> to plan you know so but like on the rugby field but um but, but one of the cool things about the brand is you know in all that challenge of like the hard work and the bits and pieces in business that I didn't know I'd have to do, you know, learning about accounts and tax and uh, challenges with the manufacturers and dealing with difficulties around like the COVID lockdowns and all these challenges. Um, every day, man, like one of the best things we did was set up um, this reviews platform um, where like customers can leave reviews. Because I get these reviews in my inbox, and it reminds me, like when when you see how it's helping people, yeah, it's like man, it, it keeps me motivated, you know. Because when you're in the thralls of the business, it can you can easily forget like how and why you started because you get bogged down by like all these bloody admin things and all that. But like, yeah, man, I, I feel grateful that. Firstly, I'm just so thankful that like. I'm able to do something now that's allowing me to transition away from rugby yeah. because, you know, I wasn't a well-educated dude. I was always interested in learning from people and their experiences and I was interested in like reading and podcasts, but I never had like an official education that I saw like a clear-cut path around what I wanted to do with life after sport. So that was one thing always on my mind. And obviously, you know, like I wasn't a player earning wages that were going to set me up or bloody uh, a comfortable life through my rugby after, you know. It yeah. was like my my reality was like, hey, I can play rugby and enjoy it, but I need to figure out how I'm going to pay the bills after. So I, I'm grateful, man, that I'm able to do something that I am very passionate about and that benefits people. Even, you know, to hear from you and my fellow athletes talking about, bro, like it's helped me so much with my sleep or my recovery, my pain relief. And then you hear of, like, we got this review the other day, bro, like, I'll read it to you because 
I've saved it on my phone. This one like nearly brought me to tears, man. It might sound a bit bloody silly, but this this dude left the um review on our thing and he goes he goes, Unbelievably good product. Uh, my mother has been diagnosed with motor neuron disease since taking pure sport C B D. She is a different person. She feels so much more relaxed, can eat food easier and swallow and has great sleep. Uh, amazing customer service also highly recommend Jeez, but man like, powerful yeah, way. things like that bro, it's like oh, this is it just reminds me like the actual whole like industry with CBD and when it's done right is something that's amazing for people so yeah it's cool man so what's the plans for CBD over the next couple of years yeah it's um things have grown like a lot quicker than what I sort of re- anticipate I guess I didn't have that much yeah. insight or business knowledge as to how it could but CBD is a fast growing industry um, more and more people are learning more people coming educated on it uh, it's spreading rapidly like word of mouth by people's great experiences with it uh, so our our vision like we've actually been approached we got approached quite early on by like um a couple different venture capitalists and that was quite a interesting experience for me because i was just this dude who didn't have much business knowledge and i was getting in these meetings with these guys that like you know invest in companies and i was like oh shit but um you know people like the angle of our brand the, the level of batch testing and the clarity that provides for the customer and obviously you know one thing we've never ever shirked on is like the quality of the product we've always said well we want to give people the best possible experience yeah you know like give them a great experience of the brand um so quite early on i realized shit we're actually onto a good thing here because we got hit up by these venture capitalist people and they wanted to invest in the company and they were talking about chucking some big like capital in there to grow the company but one thing i learned quite early on was these venture capitalist dudes they weren't that interested in the same level of integrity in the company that we were as the guys who started it. They were like, hey, how can we get the margin to be better? Oh, can true. we get rid of the testing? How can we get a uh, cheaper raw material? And we we're just like, bro, like, that's not what we'll do, man. You know, we want people to have a good experience with our product. Um, so we learned that, that for us, we knew, we chose the path of, more organic growth uh, without having that massive um, in- input of capital from these investors. Um, so our, our path is to continue to grow, but to keep the control of the company in terms of like having that integrity and bringing on. So we've had some investment now through people that have really understood the vision, that, that, that believe in it, that buy into the company, that support us in our growth and um, so we're on a like nice path of growth where we, you know, we're just really trying to keep growing the brand to be seen as um, yeah, amazing product that help people, but a brand that people are proud to like be aligned with. Yeah. Um, like a community that educates people on health and well-being, and that people, you know, like a brand that people feel proud to really talk about and be aligned with. Yeah. Um, that we're trying to build, and yeah, man, we're we're just doing that. As kind of, but by keeping the same kind of level of integrity. So, you know, it could be 
is to take on board more investment, give away more control, but have perhaps other people running the show in different countries that may not have the same values as we do. So yeah. we're trying to just scale up, but do it with a group and a team of people that have the same values. And um, yeah, we're excited about like, in Europe, we're kind of known now as the leader in terms of that active lifestyle, um, CBD. Um, and we're, we're excited about, you know, trying to get into the likes of New Zealand, Australia, and Japan, because um, we're places that we feel uh, our brand has a real alignment with um, and that the people and the cultures there are people that, you know, are really open and interested in CBD and it's a great market for us. So, yeah, man, um, that's, the, that's the plan. It's awesome stuff, man. I'm just loving it. I'm stoked as the podcast coming on board with um, pure sport it's honestly like such an amazing product and can't wait to get the word out there as much as i can for the new zealand in particular listeners and anyone who listens around the world but um as i said on my instagram the other day we've got a, a promo code if you're keen to try this stuff honestly i can't recommend it enough use the waterlad promo code which is waterlad no spaces with a 20 on the end and you'll get 20 percent off and it's been Awesome to hear hear your story, Grace. And obviously, um, it's been it's been a long time since we first met at those under nineteen trials. You you're the star, and it's been awesome to hear about your career going through all the different all the different paths it's taken you and experiences you've had. It's been awesome to hear you reflect on that with real honesty about how your career's gone. And um, this next adventure um, is the part that gets me really excited with the pure sport thing. I'm really looking forward to seeing you progress this business and looking forward to it taking over the world, mate. Nah, man. Appreciate it, mate. And uh, very, uh, it's awesome to see you doing cool things through you know your career. And um, yeah, man, that's that's one of the coolest things about rugby. Yeah, you, your teammates uh, at one point, you know, for us that was way back at, uh, in those twenties, and then. Yeah. But he just crossed paths, and um, that—that's that, one of my favourite things about rugby. Is like you—you you look at the team sheet one day, and you're bloody on the other side of the world. And it's like, holy fuck, Jimmy Marshall! Oh, you said I was going to play against him on Saturday, and uh, but he watch out for that show and go and, and chip and taste that he's known for. But, Jeez, um, I was more worried about the hundred kg frame coming through my rib cage. <laughs> Oh, mate, well, you didn't have to worry because the thing is, I was so bloody tired, bro, carrying that extra weight that those kegs were no use to me anyway. <laughs> oh, classic. <laughs> no, but really appreciate you coming on, brother, um, and giving up your time. Um, it's been awesome to hear your story, mate. Cheers, man. All good, mate. Good to catch up. Cheers, bro. Likewise.